Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, neuroscience, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, awakening, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode, I'm excited to be speaking with Tina Rasmussen. Tina Rasmussen, PhD, began meditating at age 13 and has practiced in the Theravada and Tibetan Buddhist traditions for over 30 years. In 2003, she completed a year-long solo retreat, was later ordained as a Buddhist nun, and became the first Western woman authorized to teach by renowned meditation master Paok Sayadaw. Tina has been studied by the Yale Neuroscience Lab and is co-author of Practicing the Jhanas, as well as several books on human potential. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Dimensions of Non-Duality with Tina Rasmussen. Tina, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thanks, Michael. Good to be with you. Now, I've been semi around the same circles. You've been around here in the Bay Area for years, and we've never really met, although we've talked on the phone several times. Somehow our karma has not allowed us to be in the same room at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of surprising. So I'm glad that we're finally having a longer conversation. Me too. Yeah. So how's it going these days? Yeah, it's going well. I mean, well, given all that's going on in the world, I guess. Do you know the mix of just enjoying being a human in life and also working with all of the really difficult developments in the human condition that are pretty extreme right now? and balancing all of that. And really, I don't know how people do it who don't have a spiritual practice, because there's so many really intense societal and global issues happening right now that really need our attention as well. Yeah, looking historically, it seems like everyone has always thought they're in a uniquely awful crisis. And and yet, it does seem like we are in a uniquely awful crisis with the existential threat of global warming and so on. I mean, it's just a really amazingly alive time for difficulties. Yeah, well, I don't know that at least in modern times, we've ever had a situation where everyone on the planet's life was threatened at the same time. Yeah, I was thinking maybe like the Cuban Missile Crisis or something, you know, there could have been atomic war, that kind of threat. But yeah, this seems to be on a completely different level. And so how are you helping yourself and helping others to meet this crisis or to even just surf these difficult times? What do you see as something really helpful right now? Well, when this, when the whole pandemic started, I was offering practices really related more specifically to that. And now we're in a little different mode where it feels more ongoing, even though we may be coming out of the pandemic, we have the whole climate change situation, which especially for us on, on the West Coast of the Bay Area and other places like ours, we are the canaries in the coal mine and really Mm -hmm. seeing the effects of climate change on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. So, you know, I think this is where all of the Buddhist practices to me have something to offer 
So I really see that in four categories, which is somata or focused attention concentration practices, which help us to turn away from our ruminating. And when we're just finding that we're, I love this word, doom scrolling, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I admit I've done it. But when we're just ruminating about difficulties, either personal or global, to be able to cultivate the capacity to turn away and to find a place of neutrality that is always available to us. So those practices have a lot to offer. There's the Vipassana or open monitoring practices, which allow us to be with what is without getting so caught up and hanging on to the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant or falling asleep to ourselves when things are neutral and needing to find entertainment. So that to me is where practices like Vipassana come in mm-hmm. to really cultivate that capacity to be with things without and have some equanimity. And then the heart practices give us a balm for ourselves, for others when they're suffering or to be able to enjoy joyful experiences that are happening. And also to have equanimity, I feel like that is such an important practice to have for the times we're in. And then the self-transcending category practices like like Zubchan or Chitanupasada, which they're cultivating the capacity to really experience what we are beyond the body and the personality that is eternal and isn't touched by what's happening. So those are the four core practices of Buddhism and what I teach, and all of them have something really important to offer to all of us. And when you typically teach someone shamatha, how do you do that? Which mode are you finding that most students resonate with? Well, I teach it in the way that I learned it from Pawak Sayadaw, which is the lineage that I teach in and learned in. So that's how I teach it and offer it. Technically, both the Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, and the Brahma Viharas, the heart practices, as well as many other practices. I think there's 40 practices in this category that the Buddha gave us, but mainly I teach mindfulness of breathing mm-hmm. when I'm teaching that. So yeah, any concentration practice is somebody having their object and coming back to that object to the exclusion of everything else over and over. And when there's stability of mind resting on that, and the word samatha or shamatha means both concentration and serenity. People often forget that the serenity part, you know, and especially in the times we're living in, who can say that they don't have enough serenity or who can say they have too much? You know, you don't hear somebody say, oh, I just have way too much serenity today. I need to cut back there. So it's important to remember that part of the practice and just being with something, especially the breath, which is animating the body. If there's something inherently that can be very soothing about being with our breath. And in this practice, the breath is known in the area between the upper lip and the nostril, which is called the Anapana spot or region. So it could be either a specific spot or a general region about the size of an orange or a grapefruit right there by that area. And we come back to that spot when our mind wanders. And when we're there, we rest with it. And we know the breath as it crosses 
that area. And that's really the instruction. That's pretty simple, but it's not easy to do. Yeah. And the way you're describing that, Tina, is I would characterize it as very polycanon, right? Very mm-hmm, Theravada mm-hmm. way of talking about breathing. Do you find yourself teaching any breathing practices that are more like Vajrayana or more yogic type breathing practices? I don't. I practice pranayama breathing. It's the only other breath practice I've really done with any duration of time and consistency. And I think that's a great practice. I'm not really a Hindu practitioner, so I'll leave that for the people who really are steeped in that. But those can be great practices. Those practices are different. Pranayama breathing in particular is different because you're manipulating the breath for specific reasons. In the Anapanasati, the breath is natural. In some ways, we're moving towards non-doing. So the purposes of the practice are very different and both valuable. But in my view, if we're going to spend time doing a practice, it's worthwhile to know what the purpose of it is. What does it do to our consciousness? And is that something that I need in my practice right now? Mm -hmm. And how does that fit with other practices that I might do or consider? I really teach mainly in those four categories that I just mentioned. That's kind of the core of my teaching. And then I will get into body-based practices and other things as part of what I feel is an overall complete set of practices that one needs for a complete spiritual path. That includes things like the Enneagram, working with our personality material. But the main four practices I teach are the ones that I just went over at the beginning. Yeah. The reason I bring up the yogic breathing is because you mentioned in the fourth part the more essence tradition or Vajrayana tradition type practices. And of course, those include in Buddhism quite a bit of breath work also, at least with some of the lineages. So I wondered if you included that as well. Yeah, when I'm teaching and the way I learned, for example, Dzogchen didn't include anything like that. It was pretty much a combination of a heart practice, bodhicitta, Samatha or Shamatha with support, Shamatha without support, which bleeds over into Vipassana and then Rigpa. Yes. So I don't really teach things like Guru Yoga. Mm-hmm. I've paired it down to what I was taught and what I feel are kind of the essential parts of the practice. But people are drawn to something like pranayama breathing, or if they've learned those from teachers who are qualified to teach those, which I'm really not, it can be a great support for the practice. I consider something like pranayama breathing to be a body-based practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and like when I did my year-long solo retreat, I did pranayama breathing every day. So I'm a big believer in it as overall as a practice, especially for energy work and clearing out the energy channels and increasing our subtle energy. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. I guess some of the background of my question is you're clearly highly trained and realized in these early Buddhist traditions, but also in later Buddhist traditions. And it's rare that someone has your level of experience in both of these. And so the place my question is coming from is to what extent are those blending together really smoothly? And if there's any ways that you feel that they don't blend together so well. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been a whole journey, which I would imagine some of that same journey in your history. I don't know. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) We both were kind of similar, I think, in that way. And I've been deeply involved in the Diamond Approach for the last 15 years for embodiment reasons. Yeah. So there's that too. And it's been a very gradual or sometimes bumpy process of really how to work with those traditions in a way that makes sense. For me, I feel there's a natural compatibility between Theravadan and Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And this could be because like one of my early teachers who I still speak with at times was Guy Armstrong from Spirit Rock. When I was, again, in my 20s and 30s and then preparing to do my year-long solo retreat, I guess maybe it was in my early 30s, he thought it would be good for me to start practicing Zogchen. So that's where it really got me into it. You know, I was doing all these Vipassana retreats and mainly practicing Theravada Buddhism and a little bit of Hindu practice at that time. And part of what I discovered when I did start practicing with Sokni and Ninja Rinpoche, which are the two main teachers I've had in Buddhism, was that there were tons of Vipassana people there. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it was like a sea of, well, it wasn't all the Vipassana people, which you could tell during the lunch breaks, because at the beginning of the Tibetan retreats, we would all go into noble silence, and then everybody start talking at lunch, and all yep. the Vipassana people would be huddled around the silent table, you know? <laughs> of course, judging all of the Tibetans who were talking, you know? <laughs> I softened on that over the years, but it was in teachers. You know, I was so surprised because, you know, back then I wasn't a teacher. And it was Sokni Rinpoche and Minjur, I'm assuming, but I heard Sokni talk about how he felt that they were good practitioners, but possibly people would come in and they had a lot of basics. Yeah, the technical skills are there. Exactly. Yeah. And also those practices, like when I read Alan Wallace's, genuine happiness and I've had students of his come through there's a lot of similarity and when I learned shamatha from Sophie and Minjur and Pache's that there was a lot of similarity to what I had already been practicing so from an actual practice standpoint they felt kind of seamless like even now I feel like the samatha the vipassana and then adding the self-transcending practice the, the rinpa, to it is a really great combination. And it's not really that different than what I was taught. So philosophically, there are differences. That's the place that needs some reconciling. Because if you're really deep into Theravada Buddhism and getting off the wheel and the duality of how the view is in Theravada Buddhism, that isn't compatible with Tibetan. Yeah, the view is entirely different. Right, right. So I really have a Tibetan view. I mean, clearly, and I'll even say that in my retreats that I think the Theravadans are amazing with practices. Like the way that the Brahma Viharas are taught Theravadan Buddhism, just, it's incredible. You know, the level of detail and the rigor of how the practices are understood and taught in Theravadan Buddhism, I think is really amazing. And also when you go to retreats, you have time to practice. The Tibetan retreats I've been to, there's like six hours of teaching a day. Yeah, you're learning about a sutra at great length. Right, right. So you need another retreat to actually practice the meditation in depth. 
so that's what I used to do, you know, but like now as a teacher, of course, one of the fun things about being a teacher is you could do what you wanted to get when you were not a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so now for me, it's fun because I offer the rigor of the Theravada teachings and a streamlined version of the Tibetan teachings because a lot of Theravadans, they just go, I can't sit there and do chanting for two hours a day. You know, I don't want to sit and watch a rice ceremony for three hours. And there's so much of the cultural overlay sometimes in Tibetan Buddhism that it turns off or scares off some of the Theravadan practitioners. And then they want to be able to meditate more. Yeah, so that's been fun for me to be able to offer, for my taste at least, the best of both. Well, this is an interesting question for you when you start working with, you're calling it self-transcending work. What do you feel is essential there? Yeah, well, the non-duality to me is essential. Mm -hmm. That's really what are methods that can help people cultivate, get tastes of, if this is something that hasn't arisen for a person to how can there be tastes of non-duality that are cultivated? And then how can that be cultivated in one's consciousness more and more so that there's more access? And then ultimately, can that have stability? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think the Tibetan practices are amazing for all of that. And what I like is like what they're short on, in my view, is they teach that the shamatha is extremely important, but they don't actually give you time to practice enough to develop a deep samadhi on the retreats. It does take real time. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I think that like the Theravadan approach to doing retreats, I think is more effective because you're actually going to the retreat and you're having a lot of time to practice and getting support in actually going deep on the retreat. Well, it would just need more time. So that's what I like about doing a hybrid because if people get to a place where they're concentrated deeply, accessing non-duality, having that arise becomes a lot more available because the ego isn't very active. That's right. It becomes more available. And also, as you pointed out, the very important stability of that is also available. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what I found. I'm working with a lot of advanced people now, even some teachers. And, you know, I just have so much appreciation for the Samatha because it's not just important in the beginning. It's equally, if not more important when you're advanced, because if somebody has access to non-duality and they, it's not stable and they're just in out all the time, it becomes dissatisfying. That's right. And yet it's a capacity that has to be cultivated in the mind stream. You know, I've worked with advanced practitioners who have come back to the Samatha because they want to have more stability of the non-duality that, that's accessible and also off the cushion with eyes open, moving around in life. So that's where, to me, you, everyone's got to circle back to the Samatha again at some point, I think, because it's needed for the stability. That's right. I mean, a taste of awakening is wonderful, but being able to stably access that throughout your day, that's where it's at, right? And that's a lot of work, especially if you don't have a good shamatha background. So right. really, really makes it very challenging. Right. Yeah. Somebody who's had a lot of maybe deep access concentration doing Vipassana, that's a great benefit also, because there's a capacity to work with, you know, different 
contents of experience in the present moment. But, you know, the Vipassana, it's mostly about the objects and not about the ground awareness. And that's a lot harder to have stability with. So that's where I really appreciate the emphasis on the Samatha in, in Tibetan Buddhism because they really have a deep appreciation for it, I think, because it's so needed for stability once a person has access to non-duality. Absolutely. Now, speaking of non-duality, I've heard that you have a kind of comparison of the levels or understanding of non-duality in Buddhist practice compared to Almas's levels in the diamond approach. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I've started teaching about in the last couple of years. And it was a little bit of a leap when I did it because there isn't a whole lot of traffic between the two. Although, you know, the diamond approach is very open and there are a lot of Buddhists in the diamond approach, but they aren't necessarily people who've had experience with the immaterial realms in Buddhism. So as I really started exploring more of the nuances of non-duality in my own practice Mm -hmm. and could see the terrain with more specificity and more, I guess, like sophistication or something as my own practice deepened and I had more time with those. And also as I was deepening in the diamond approach over the last 15 years, I started seeing that in my view, there was absolutely a correlation between what in Theravadan Buddhism and also Tibetan is known as the immaterial realms. And in the diamond approach, it's called the boundless dimensions. And experientially, I felt and feel that there is a correlation between them. And also then as a teacher, it's been really helpful to me because I teach in a way that's very ecumenical and non-fundamentalist. You know, I've had Catholic nuns come to my retreats. (laughs) I have a Wicca student who comes to my retreats, you know, and everybody's equally welcome. So the people will come and some people have had non-dual experiences that were outside of their tradition. And it's hard for them to find somebody who can support their practice because, you know, in Buddhism, we're looking for the emptiness, not unity emptiness, you know, and in Christianity or Sufism, we're looking more for unity. So there's different ways of understanding the non-duality, but they're all ultimately non-duality. The flavors can be very different, though. And so that's where I got interested in starting to teach on this so that especially people who were having non-dual experiences could start having a framework for understanding the differences, like why is it different one time versus another? And did I lose something? Or, you know, my teachers can't relate to what's happening to me. So that was part of why I started teaching from it, because I'm using it when people come to me. And people can usually, no matter what they're experiencing with non-duality, they can find a way that it can be understood. And it can give them a landing in their own experience of it. This is super fascinating, and I'd love to hear your comparison. You probably don't know this, but I've interviewed almost several times on the show. And, oh, you know, wow. I just, I just a big fan of his work. And also, of course, I teach several non-duality courses mm. and meditation and so on. So to me, this is like super exciting and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting to me too. What's exciting to me is that 
I'd had this experience with the immaterial realms in Buddhism before I was even in the diamond approach. And I hadn't read a lot. I wasn't one to read a lot before I, I have experiences. I like to read after so they don't mm -hmm. influence what I'm experiencing. But then when I went to the diamond approach, I saw this map and I was like, wow, this is really well fleshed out, you know, but I wasn't sure if they went together at all. So anyway, I'll go through it a little bit quickly just to sort of give a sense of it. So in Buddhism, there's the physical realm, which we're in, you know, which includes all materiality and also the Brahma Viharas. Well, they are taught to the level of jhana, and I'll just use that word to say it's state that can arise that is non-dual, but it's based on concentration. So one can experience non-duality, obviously, without that level of concentration. So it's unique. It's dependent on the concentration. But the Brahma Vihara practices in Buddhism can be experienced up to the level of jhana. They aren't considered a formless realm. So they are still within the form realm as it's understood in Buddhism. And then the first immaterial realm is the base of boundless space. And I'll give these to you and then I'll go back. I'm going up now to the more and more refined and more and more empty level. I'm really appreciating that you're calling them Arupa Ayatanas, formless realms rather than jhanas too. Yeah, well, jhanas are experiences. The formless realms in Buddhism, as you know, are considered actual realms. Yeah, they're places. Yeah, they are realms of existence, and that's how it's understood in the diamond approach. And for me, that was an experience, and this is why, to me, they are dimensions of non-duality. Yeah, and they can be experienced momentarily. One doesn't have to have jhana, just like in Tibetan Buddhism, when we're doing rigpa, it's momentary, or in Zen. Yeah, it's not a special state. Right, it's always there, it's, it's our ground. It's the ground of the awareness that's happening right at this moment. So they're always there. It's just that they're usually veiled or, you know, not accessible. Yeah. So then we have the physical. Well, the next more refined or, or thinner, you know, more immaterial is space. And then the next more refined immaterial realm is the base of boundless consciousness and then the next realm is the base of nothingness or, or no-thingness. Now we're getting more and more empty. And then the next is neither perception nor non-perception, which, like, can you tell me what that is? <laughs> you know, it's very, <laughs> even the name of it is pointing you to non-duality because it's saying you can't even have concepts here. That's right. Yeah. And then we have the mystery from which this is all emanating. So if we go the other direction, so then say you're starting with the mystery in Buddhism, the deathless, the also it's sometimes called the absolute or the nameless. So we go from that to then the just a, a little hair of existence, neither perception or non-perception. So it's so refined. It's like a spider web that you hold up to the sun, you know, it's it's like particles in the air neither perception nor non-perception. And then the next level of manifestation is nothingness, nothingness, the void. And then from the void emerges consciousness. From consciousness emerges space. 
And from space, we have to have space for the physical. So basically, this is Buddhism's map of how manifestation is occurring. And like in Vipassana and Theravadan, Vipassana, what we're seeing is the momentary rising, passing, rising, passing. We're seeing the dynamism of the ground manifesting. And that's a five minute map of how the realms that actually go from the mystery, which is complete, you know, there's no movement, no form, nothing, all the way down those levels, getting more and more dense until we get to the physical. How do you interpret the fact that the second formless realm is awareness or consciousness, and then the third one is the base of nothingness? And yet one is still having an experience there, even though we've sort of left behind the base of consciousness. Mm -hmm. How do you talk about that? I mean, we're clearly still having some kind of experience there. So Mm -hmm. consciousness has not been left behind. Yeah, well, again, there's translations and subtleties and words can make a difference which is what you're pointing to yes you're so used to unpacking this i'm just curious how you would talk about that right well this is also where the diamond approach can be helpful in the diamond approach it gets razor thin the level to which they've scrutinized and dissected everything with Hamid being a five, you know, on the Enneagram. Mm. Let's get really scientific. Let's get down to the thinnest possible level. So there's a lot of understanding that to me can be helpful from that map. But if we use awareness, awareness being a level more fundamental than consciousness. Yeah. Because conceptual thought isn't present in the way that thoughts are occurring, like in the jhanas. For example, there aren't thoughts occurring, but that is separate from these realms. Really in the realms, if one's experiencing them in a momentary way, there's awareness of that realm. And if we're functioning from it, so like if you take something like Rigpa, where you can function and walk around in life and do things, the awareness is more fundamental than consciousness. In the non-conceptual realms, it's hard to speak. The conceptualization takes us away from the direct experience because it's concretizing it. But like the base of boundless space and consciousness are much more at the unity level. So for example, if you look at the Hindu tradition, it's more about consciousness. It's more about the presence, the aliveness of the universe and so on. It's not as much about the emptiness. Or if you look at Christianity, that comes in at more at the love level, which in the diamond approach typology is actually a boundless dimension. And I feel it is too. I think because Buddhism isn't as focused on love, it puts it more in the physical levels than it does like in the diamond approach, they actually make that the first boundless dimension. So there's the physical realm. And then the first dimension in the diamond approach is boundless love or divine love, which to me equates to the Brahma Viharas, which we can experience non-dually in jhanas, for example. So boundless love. And then the next more refined dimension is called pure presence or pure being, which 
to me, equates to the base of boundless consciousness. So it's really about presence. And these two are much more on the unity side of the equation. So traditions like Sufism and Christianity are really more focused on boundless love and a little bit of the pure presence. Hinduism is more pure presence. And then in the diamond approach, the next more refined level, we're getting into some emptiness here is called the non-conceptual or the nameless, where conceptualization has now dropped and the experiences of things without the conceptual overlay. So it starts feeling a lot more empty, but it's clear like Rigpa. It's an experience of clarity and that crispness. Yeah, the crystal razor sharp clarity. Exactly. And then Rigpa to me can also include pure presence. So to me, it's a little bit of a hybrid of those two. Like if you look at the language in it, you can see both reflected just depends how empty it is. So then the next level is the absolute, which is the void, deep mystery from which everything emerges, which in my view, Theravadan Buddhism is going for. And so that equates to the base of nothingness. And then the non-conceptual equates to neither perception nor non-perception in Buddhism. And then in the Ridwan, there's another dimension called the Logos, which is the dynamism of being that runs through all the other levels, including the physical. So basically, you have the absolute, which is the most fundamental dimension of just the void of stillness of nothing, that black shimmering expanse that everything manifests from. Mm -hmm. And then the Logos dimension is basically the force of manifestation and of the dynamism of being that then produces the physical. And that to me equates to in Theravadan Buddhism, when we're really going for the arising and passing, what we're trying to really do is see the logos. We're seeing that arising and passing of phenomena occurring in that split second, going from nothingness to those subatomic particles we're actually directly perceiving the logos, but we don't have a dimension in Buddhism called that. So that's the fifth dimension in Ridwan. So you can see there's a lot of equating on both sides that to me, just somehow this makes me feel good that like in Buddhism, these are considered realities. You know, you don't have to be a Buddhist to experience that level, that kind of non-duality, anybody can. It's not about what tradition you come from. These are empirical experiences that humans can have because we are that. It seems as if one is equipped with a human brain, then you can experience this. Right. It doesn't come from any particular tradition. So the fact that they more or less line up is reflecting the experience that we can all have, right? These various experiences. Right. That's how I see it. And that to me is so hopeful and exciting about that. Now, contrasting the Theravada understanding and say the Vajrayana or Dzogchen understanding, as you say, if we're in Theravada, we're noticing the arising and passing. And in a way, we're using that deconstructively, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. However, in Vajrayana or the essence traditions like Mahamudra and Dzogchen, we're really celebrating that. Mm-hmm. Right? letting the form dance, right? Mm-hmm. It's like with the underlying emptiness 
with contact first, but then there's that whole sense of the vast display, Mm -hmm. right? The beautiful dancing display. And I feel like that that is sometimes, not always, but often really emphasized in the later Buddhist traditions. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how you're talking about that. I totally agree. And this is part of why, to me, the view is so different. We were talking about this earlier, the view of reality in Theravada Buddhism versus Tibetan Buddhism, and even in Zen some. I don't know Zen as well, so can't really talk as much about that. But in Theravada Buddhism, the arising of phenomena is uncontrollable. That is really the definition of suffering. Yes. (laughs) It's not the same as the beautiful display of manifestation. It's literally the opposite. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Look at it this way. We've got the glass half empty and the glass half full. (laughs) And personally, again, for those who know the Enneagram, I think maybe the Buddha was a one, or at least they made him into a one in the text, where the imperfection of that was seen, which is true. There's a truth that there's an uncontrollability, but in Tibetan Buddhism, it is. It's it's like, wow, look at this amazing display of form manifesting. And even though it's all seen as empty, it's still seen as, like you were saying, a beautiful display. So to me, it's a much more affirming view. Much more affirming view, yeah. yeah. I feel like it's stressed that the fact that it's empty actually makes the form even more sacred. Right? Like yeah. even more uh, wonderful and kind of amazing and spontaneous and playful and all that. Right. It's awesome that you're underlining here and that Almas underlines or Hamid is mm-hmm. the way that we can bring love in to our meditation that just doesn't seem to ever really get brought in in a Buddhist practice. Mm-hmm. It's there, but I feel I, either because it's usually monastic, even if it's Vajrayana, it's monastic and so on, that it's just a little bit more mental than the kind of like blasting love vibe you get from Sufism or Ridwan or even in Hindu Tantra, where it's just so intense. Like, Right. And so I'm curious, how do you bring that in in your teaching? Yeah, well, I totally agree with what you're saying. And that was part of what's attracted me at times to the Hindu tradition and and the diamond approach, the fact that boundless love is the first dimension of non-duality. It's the closest to the physical. And that totally makes sense because like the traditions that really embody that, a lot of times they have deities. They're more devotional and they're more human. You know, they're more about unity than emptiness. The farther we get into the dimensions that focus on emptiness, the more impersonal and the less of a love and sort of juicy kind of vibe they have. I mean, this is where, to me, my experience and also well, like when I look at a teacher like Paul Sayadaw, you look at him, he's juicy, he's not dry. You can tell he hasn't gone the dry Vipassana route, the dry insight. And there's a reason why whoever, I know that term's been around for what, thousands of years? There's a reason why they call it that. And that's in part because, in my view, the samatha and the juicy part, if one has done samatha practice, it's juicy. 
And that practice came before the Buddha. It came out of yogis practicing in caves in the Himalayas that weren't even part of the tradition, but it ended up going into the Hindu path. So if you read a book like the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is one of the Hindu scriptures, you can see exactly what we're practicing or doing the Samatha. It's identical. It is, right, yeah. So to me, that's one of the exciting things about that reintegration, in my view, of the Samatha into the Theravadan path and reintegrating the juicy side of it because it's experiential. It's like feeling the juicy sort of ecstatic manifestation of the ground. Even though there's still the emptiness, there's an engagement of the heart and of the ecstatic part of the path that isn't dry. And when I teach my two-week retreats, even in access concentration, people experience it and they're shocked. They're shocked when they start experiencing the jhana factors. And some of the time it's so strong that like can be a lot even. I give a whole talk on what to do with it. That first experience of PT can be really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people want it. In my view, it's part of the goodies that make us want to keep coming back. Yeah. It's a self-reinforcing loop. So it's a shame that that did get sort of diminished. But to me, it is part of Buddhism. It's there. And also we have the Brahmaviharas, which in my view have in some ways gotten a little bit marginalized. They've turned into just like a mantra or a, like, oh, I'm going to send metta to that person rather than an actual really robust purification of the heart if one is really doing them the way that they were designed. And they've in a lot of ways been pushed off as like a side thing that you do. But that's not really how the Buddha taught them. No, I mean, to me, and correct me if you see this differently, but they can be just as strong for developing shamatha and furthermore, incredibly delicious. Right. I agree completely. Yeah. 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 So they are in Buddhism, but ultimately Buddhism is about emptiness. That's really the focus. And this is where like in the diamond approach, one of the things that has been really good for me and my own unfoldment is the embodiment aspect, the integration of psychology but also the diamond approach, the main pillars in my view are psychology, Dzogchen or Tibetan Buddhism and Sufism. And what is brought in with the non-duality aspects of the understanding of Sufism is the love. And also what about the human part? You know, in the Eastern traditions, what's valued is the impersonal ground and those, in my view, Buddhism has the best practices out there for realizing that impersonal ground that everything in existence shares. It's not personal. It's universal. And the Western traditions, which were based in traditions about a human, they know a lot more about the personal and what's valuable about the human experience. And in the diamond approach, there are spiritual technologies for a structure of consciousness that allows for individual consciousness that isn't the ego. That's from Sufism. And we don't even have that in Buddhism. There's no understanding of that technology that's found in the Western traditions. 
So that to me is part of what balances out and allows for the embodiment is all of the spiritual technologies around the personal and how that's equally as valuable as the impersonal. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. I'm curious what psychological practices you are usually directing your students to take up or to work with. It seems to be hugely important and it works on a lot of stuff that meditation doesn't even seem to touch. And psychological practices and meditation practices can get in a synergistic feedback loop that just really helps the person grow in both domains, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I've seen out there is certainly trauma practices. If someone has that level of trauma going on, something like somatic experiencing or EMDR or something, then once that's cleared out, things like ideal parent protocol and internal family systems, from what I've seen, seem to be both recommended and honestly, most useful stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you've seen as the most helpful and what do you recommend for your students? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying and that you work with all of that too. It's so important these days because we have those technologies now. And this is the first time in human history that we actually understand what's going on with the human psyche at a rigorous scientific level. So we're just so fortunate to be in a time when we have that and have access to all of it. Yeah, that's one of the things that drew me to the diamond approach was that it's really seen as a continuum. The psychological and the spiritual are like one continuum. And inquiry is the main practice used there. So I use that a lot with people when I'm doing one-on-ones with them. I don't teach it on retreats, but I did spend eight years in the diamond approach teacher training, which is extremely intensive and I learned a lot. And so when I'm working with people one-on-one, I do inquiry with them if that's something that they are interested in. It's a great way to have them start working their practice off the cushion using inquiry as it's understood in the diamond approach. And then psychologically, the trauma modalities that we have now in the last 20 or 30 years have just been so amazing. Right. You know, I have a very severe birth trauma. And when I started really going deeper on the spiritual path in my late 20s, I was doing holotropic breath work. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Sure. So when you bring that up, I'm like, are we talking a perinatal thing? Like, Yeah. Well, I almost died at birth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was literally was about 30 seconds from death. I, I was breached. The cord was wrapped around my neck. I started coming out and my feet activated my lungs. They were pressing in. And so I started drowning. So I think of Stan Groff's perinatal matrices. That sounds like a a level three right there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's about the worst it can possibly get. And, And then this was 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago, when they didn't know anything. They thought babies were lumps of clay and that if they didn't die, then that was the only impact, you know. So yeah, when I started doing deep spiritual work in my 20s, this all came out and I started looking for ways of working with it because it's all pre-verbal. Yeah. It's preconceptual. And if you start having experiences in those preconceptual realms, the good thing is you can start accessing this, but it's going to bring it out. And so when you would run into that trauma in a nonverbal, preverbal way, 
what was the main manifestation? Was it like just terror or did it have other qualities? Yes, you know, from trauma work, anything that was either perceived to be life-threatening, whether it was or not, like if a child's falling off a bike, even if it's not life-threatening, it can be perceived as life-threatening, so it has the same effect. It just overwhelms the system and it has to go into the unconscious and just be trapped there to get triggered when triggering things would come. For years, I couldn't do breath meditation. You know, even in Vipassana, I would have to do it really shallowly. I couldn't do deep belly breathing. It would trigger fear. And I didn't know why. You know, I'd go into my teachers and be like, it's not that easy to notice the breath. So what was great was that when I would go to choiceless awareness with Vipassana, I had pain. And so pain became the object and it didn't change much. So it really, (laughs) I ended up having a lot of concentration because my object didn't change much, Yeah, yeah. you know, but I couldn't use the breath. And that's when I started getting something's, you know, I knew the story about my birth because my parents told me, but they never thought that much of it because I didn't die and they didn't know if there were effects. So it wasn't until I was about three that they really knew that there hadn't been any damage, you know, brain damage, or maybe there was, who knows, but it wasn't observable. But it was in my cells and there was so much trauma around like my neck area that it was all just in the cells. So I've been literally working with this for about 20 years and and almost all of it's gone now. But that's where I really started seeing that if one does deep spiritual work, if there's anything like that, it's important to have those therapies. The spiritual technologies aren't necessarily going to help a person all the way working through trauma. That's very true. And it might even mainly trigger it as you're describing. Right. Yeah. So for me, if I see somebody's having that, they should go see a trauma therapist. You know, it becomes a great way that, as you were saying earlier, the two can support each other, psychological work, or people may need to go see a therapist to do some healing of egoic work that's cracked that really needs to be worked psychologically. And if somebody heals that area, their spiritual practice can go deeper. That's right. I mean, even in basic shamatha practice, if someone starts to get real still and peaceful, and there's some material down there, that still peaceful state allows for the material to just bubble up, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the best way forward there is to work some of that out psychologically, it seems. Mm-hmm. Of course, continuing to meditate, but there's sort of the brute force method of letting it bubble up for a long time, but there's also some real utility in just working on it directly psychologically, mm-hmm. which as you mentioned, is just new technology that was never available in ancient India or whatever. Right, exactly, yeah. I see the same thing, and I'm sure you see this a lot too, where somebody will go deep in the Samatha, and really, I think this is part of why the Buddha talked about the Samatha so much. There are many reasons, but one is that whatever's there, you're going to see it quickly. Yes. If you try to be with a small object, like the breath in that area, you will see what's taking you off of it, and the more you go deep and you aren't looping in those egoic grooves of your consciousness that are there as defense mechanisms, basically. When you're not letting those run, they will get louder and louder and keep trying to get your attention. And so when people can't be with the breath, they're seeing what 
the grooves in their consciousness are, and they're either deconditioning those to where those grooves become less compulsive, and that's part of the muscle we're building with something like Samata, or they see that they need to explore those using a different modality. When I'm working with people like on a two-week retreat, this is where the inquiry has been so helpful. It's, inquiry is it's used in the diamond approach. It's kind of like an off-the-cushion vipassana, which to me just validates Buddhism, where like the way I teach the Samatha, when somebody, their hindrances and defilements are just in their face so much they can't be with the breath anymore, then we use vipassana. And we go into investigation and we try to understand what's going on and what needs to be digested and worked through there. And maybe that can be done using Vipassana and the inquiry or might need trauma work or some therapy. But we try to see that hot coal, you know, that the Buddha talked about and can it be let go of or does it need compassion? Does it need psychological healing to actually work through and that's where what I would use with them is inquiry and we can see how far we can get using that. And then they may need to do some psychological work with a professional in those fields. Yeah. What are some examples of inquiry questions you would use in that case? Yeah, like if say somebody comes in with a lot of aversion, maybe they're on week two of a long retreat and the person five people away is just driving them crazy with their heavy breathing, you know, or whatever it is. Somebody's <laughs> aversive, there will always be something that will be driving them crazy because it's, you know, part of their pattern that when they start getting settled, the aversion isn't there anymore and they'll get kicked up. And so they may come in and maybe they even know they're an aversive type. And so it'll be like, okay, if we're moving away from, the samatha, when they're coming in, you know, to work with you, that's the time to do some of the inquiry because they're exploring. Or if I'm working with somebody, like I work with people all the time on my year-long mentoring program, that's a great opportunity to do a lot of inquiry every month into their patterns. Okay, let's feel, basically, we're using something similar to Vipassana. Can you feel the anger right now as you're telling me about this? Yeah, I can. Where do you feel it in your body? Well, in my stomach, I feel a knot. And then in my heart, it feels hot. I feel like I just want to yell at them in the middle of the hall. <laughs> okay, let's go and feel what's going on in your stomach. What is that like? You know, and they'll talk about it and we'll be able to tease apart what's really going on there. And maybe underneath the anger, there's a helplessness because they can't do anything to make the person stop or they want me to make them stop you know, which might be appropriate, but I mean, somebody's breathing and I'm not going to make them stop that. <laughs> I remember one time at the forest refuge, I was there for like three months doing a silent retreat and another retreatant had a scarf that they wore. And so for some reason, and I mean, you know, who knows, but for some reason, this became the unbearable object. I just mm -hmm. couldn't stand that they had the <laughs> scarf they were wearing and had all this dialogue about how all the things that were wrong with the scarf and why they would wear it. And, I mean, so clearly that was stuff that I got to work with and not appropriate for the teacher to stop the other person. You know, <laughs> they wouldn't leave a note saying, please stop wearing that scarf. <laughs> That's right. It's driving the other retreat right. insane. <laughs> 
I had something like that. It was actually one of my most liberating moments in my practice in the early days when I was doing the month longs at, at Spirit Rock. And I have my hearing is like amazing, which isn't always a blessing, I'll tell you. <laughs> and I had, used to have a lot of sound aversion. Fortunately, it's really lessened a lot over the years. But at the end of this month long, I was talking to one of my friends down at the dining hall after we brought silence. And I was saying, oh, God, did you hear that one yogi? You know, they came to every sitting light and the door would be banging. And then they'd make all this noise wrestling around as they were sitting down. And it was just like so inconsiderate of all the rest of us. And, you know, I'm going on and on feeling totally self-righteous and justified. And I turned to my friend and he says, oh, that didn't bother me at all. And well, I was a little angry when he said that at first, but it was like I got something about Buddhism, which is all that suffering was optional. Yeah, who was creating the suffering there? Right, exactly. Right, my friend didn't suffer at all, so it meant that the actual stimulus was not what was causing it, that I had an option to not suffer. And I think it was a turning point in my really getting at a deep level the Four Noble Truths that they were really true and that something in me could be different to where I didn't suffer. That's really beautiful. Yeah. So Tina, if people want to learn more about your work, where should they go? Yeah. So my website is luminousmindsanga.com. We'll put a link to luminousmindsanga.com in the show notes. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm also on a new platform called InnerCraft that's targeted specifically for intermediate to advanced practitioners. I don't know about that. I'll check it out. Yeah. Okay. So it's been great to talk to you today. Thanks for coming on the show. You too, Michael. I'm really glad we got to spend this time and got to know each other a little bit better. Me too. All right. Have a great one. Okay. You too. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. 
A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there. So if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the DeconstructingYourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at DeconstructingYourself.com slash sign up, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>